Welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing on the ones and twos, it's Rick Rubin, one of the superstar producers of the last 40 years. Rubin went from Long Island punk to hip-hop pioneer in the 80s, founding Def Jam Records out of his dorm room with Russell Simmons. He'd go on to produce some of the top recording artists of his era, ranging from Beastie Boys to Neil Diamond, LL Cool J to Metallica, and co-head Columbia Records. And today we'll be learning all about Rubin from the book Rick Rubin in the Studio by Jake Brown. But first, let's introduce our own guest. He's a record producer, author, and proprietor of the YouTube channel Muse Formation. Folks, it's Jesse Cannon. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Hey, so psyched to be here. Thanks for coming. This is a long time in the making. It's true. It's a, that, that was when it was nice out, not covered in snow. <laughs> <laughs> this this episode originally was born of a a summertime Prospect Park hang. Yes, and and now we've we've crossed the the realms of cyberspace and we're making it happen. Yes, st- and COVID is still going on. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> we love to hear it. Uh, yes, COVID, COVID is eternal, but so is also the production work of Rick James. <laughs> Rick, Rick James? James? Rick James. I mean, I'm sorry, I've got so correct. many Ricks in my head. Also correct. <laughs> Rick James' work is immortal. Yeah, we did Rick James two episodes ago. We, Molly and I were joking. We've, we've created a tasty little Rick sandwich in here uh, <laughs> with Rick's James and Reuben as the bread and uh, Frank, uh, a, a Frank in the middle. Hmm. Um, and I, I said that we needed to then see if there was any Rick Astley oh. uh, r- works of writing so we could thoroughly Rickroll people. Yes. I, I, I was going to say, you don't just do the episode as a Rickroll? Oh, my God. That would be very <laughs> retro. <laughs> I feel like people would be like, wow, why is this episode 45 seconds? I think you'll lose some <laughs> subscribes. <laughs> yes. I mean, if we ever cover Rick Astley, maybe uh, uh, someday an April Fool's, we should just you know name a very high profile thing that we've been holding off covering for a while. Uh, you know, I don't know, Motley Crue or whatever, and then people open it up and <laughs> it's just a, yeah, Death Grips and oh. it's just a, a Rick Astley More, episode. It's really tragic. So many people have asked uh, for a Death Grips episode, but like there's not really a single text on them and mm. they are so fragmented through the entire internet that it's actually kind of impossible to like cobble something together. <laughs> um, but some, if anyone wants to write the definitive Death Grips book, we're waiting. I, I, I want to listen to you it. guys do that. Yeah, yeah. Because that's a group. I, I came very late to them, but I am thoroughly in love, and uh, it's a group I'd want to know more about. They seem to inspire ferocious passion, I have yes, to say. It's true. It's either zero, zero, or zero 100. or 100, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you for suggesting Rick Rubin, bringing him to the pod, because as I was saying right before we started recording, like as soon as you start thinking, okay, I'm going to talk about Rick Rubin and just dive into the associated music acts you get to talk to, uh, it's just a joy because he's he's produced literally everyone and so many of these albums are absolute bangers. So I'm excited to talk a little Beastie Boys today. Always mm-hmm. excited to dive back into the peps, the peps <laughs> at their peak. Uh, oh, yes. I'm going to talk some metal, going to talk some hip hop. Uh, he, he's, well, I guess we'll get to the extent to which he is or is not the man, but certainly in mm-hmm. terms of his discography, he is. The man. So let's start off as we always do. Uh, why Rick Rubin? What, what's your experience with him beforehand? And we can start, Jesse? Yeah. So uh, I am 43 years old. So that means I would see this guy who kind of looked ridiculous 
talking about the word deaf a lot, but I respected him because he's working with the Beastie Boys of Public Enemy, two of the most important groups of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And he's clearly from punk, which I come from. And I'm like, I was a kid who loved hip hop and loved punk. And so like, I'm like, okay, got to respect it, even though his look is a little cringe. Um, <laughs> but uh, as I became a record producer, now I should say this, when you're a record producer for a living, there is like, we were talking about death grips of zero or a hundred you either despise Rick Rubin or you like worship at the altar, which is funny because okay. now I, I feel like now that I, uh, one of the reasons I suggest is I did a big video essay on him this year and I wrote a battle. I wrote a book on creativity and music and you can't write a book on creativity and music without talking about him a lot because he is like the philosophical God of it. So now mm-hmm. I went from like kind of disrespecting him in some ways to like, I have a lot more respect and now I find myself defending him to people all the time. Great. Interesting. Which I, will I, probably happen. <laughs> I imagine we'll get into it, but I think that that seems to be maybe a common journey of it's like you, you see this guy on the surface and you're like, Oh damn, he owns. And then you like learn a little more and see what some of the detractors have to say. And you're like, maybe mm-hmm. I was wrong about this. Maybe he's all flash and no mm-hmm. substance. And then I guess we'll get to the third stage with you and, and try to go, you know, through the veil and, and, and find the galaxy brain take that. Nah, he's actually good. <laughs> oh no, I have the galaxy brain take. <laughs> I mean, like all things, the true galaxy, the galaxy brain of any like controversial cultural th- uh, uh, position is, eh, it's fine. <laughs> it's like just that. okay <laughs> yeah it's just okay but for the sake of making good content uh you gotta you gotta come down hard on one position or the other mm-hmm. um molly do you want to go or, or me i've got something i've got i've got something i was first aware i mean obviously i, I think i listened to rick rubin produce or executive produce music before this but my first experience of like understanding what a rick rubin joint was was 99 problems because i think he shows up at the end in the video because i was actually i was doing a little bit of supplementary googling today and one of the like you know the google like top four questions that they show that like people are asking one of them was (laughs) who's the white guy at the end of the 99 problems video (laughs) that's great and that's the answer but so i was i was aware of of him in in that way and like jay-z at the end of the song shouts out he's like you're crazy for this one rick and i was like who's rick <laughs> like what did he do and then i then i understood and you know that he contributed this incredible song to uh the black album was it was it the black album yeah that should be correct yeah and so I then I kind of became aware of him as like the the mythical bearded figure and then have realized that he's produced a ton of stuff that I have uh, listened to and enjoyed over the years. Most recently, my my last experience of understanding the Rick Rubin vibe is that I came to the realization and I can't remember how is that the song Save Tonight by Eagle Eye Cherry. I was thinking about that. Uh, oh, because my friend I had. I told my friend that we were interviewing uh, Max from Eve Six, which we did the prior Shout episode. And my friend goes, oh, man, that's so awesome. I love the song Save Tonight. <laughs> and I was like, Eve Six did some other songs. He did the Heart in the Blender song. 
uh, saved tonight was Eagle Eye Cherry. And then I was like, what's up with Eagle Eye Cherry? And I looked into his background, realized that he it's not a band. I thought it was a band and it's a, a guy named Eagle Eye Cherry, Nina Cherry's brother. I was going to say, are we, we going to get to the one only reason that people discuss him aside from this? Yeah. <laughs> and son, son of jazz legend Don Cherry. And I was like, I can't believe it's a guy. And his name is his legal name is Eagle yeah, Eye. His given name is Eagle Eye. And then someone on Twitter recommend they're like, listen to this song that he did, like this follow up album that he did. It's like kind of sick. And guess who produced it? Or at least it said he produced it. Rick Rubin. <laughs> so I was like, oh, shit. I kind of didn't realize he, he got his, his finger in that, in that pie. But anyway, uh, he, he, he is all reaching. He is ever present. He he's touched a lot of shit that I enjoy. And I'm excited to talk about him. Chris. Uh, so I've mentioned this before on the show, but when I was in high school, my friends, uh, specifically one of my friends was, uh, obsessed, not with the, he wasn't a huge Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, but was obsessed with the album Blood Sugar Sex Magic as mm-hmm. like a pin, a, 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 half as a joke, but also half like totally sincere as like it, it was for him, like a pinnacle of a certain type of, of early nineties rock and Rick Rubin produced that. And so we watched several times this documentary called Funky Monks about the creating of that album and Rick Rubin features heavily into that. So he became Rick Rubin became like uh, a go a joke among our uh, friend group as like a, the, the type of badass producer. Uh, and you know, that, that got me familiar with him as a figure and, you know, toward as far as pop production uh, went, you know, he became one of the people that I like fully recognized and would be excited for. Like I remember being actually, <laughs> because of my friend's blood sugar sex magic uh, obsession, like excited when he was uh, coming back for Stadium Arcadium, mm. even though that album uh, it does not uh, uh, hit me the same as blood sugar sex magic that does. Although I do like uh, snow. Hey, <laughs> you know, that little like guitar look, <laughs> but yeah, that's what got me into it. And of course, you know, I, I was a big BC boys fan also in high school and I kind of understood that, you know, their work got a lot more mature and complicated and, you know, real uh, than License to Ill. And I knew I kind of like it was in part on me that that was like kind of their immature, jokey first album. But it's one of those things where as I get older, I'm like, damn, that album rips so hard. It's so good. It's it's just such a delight to listen to all the way through. Uh, and it sounds super unique. And I, I think that that's one of the things that I'm. Obviously, that's like his first big, big thing, and and but I'd still just come back to it as being like, damn, what a way to make something that sounded like absolutely nothing else at the time, and like set a t- the template for like a bunch of shit. F- funny thing about Funky Monks is like among record producers circles, like we always talk about that recording movies are terrible because they don't teach mm-hmm. you anything. Like you mm-hmm. just see a bunch of guys hanging out and like moving a knob. That one, if you watch it, you can learn so much about recording. It's like kind of incredible. There's That's a lot cool. of I haven't watched it in forever, and I certainly wasn't watching it with the eye of like how to do shit. But I do remember it being very good and interesting, and it actually like showing a lot of like how they got weird sounds, like them sitting around on the floor in the house that one that you know Jimi Hendrix owned at one point, like banging on pots and pans to get the breaking the girl percussion. <laughs> And it also has like a bunch of good like these guys' personality thing, uh, uh, clips in it. Uh, I I would I would like to revisit it because I remember that being a a really fun good movie, even if you don't love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, they aged badly for me, but I loved that record at the time. But uh, free on YouTube right now, Funky Monks. Yes, check it out. Get get that URL going. In the, <laughs> I'll throw it in, in the, the episode. Throw it in the episode notes. 
Um, should we get into some uh, biographical stuff? And then the, I would say that this book isn't necessarily like, it's not the, it's pretty dry, no. especially like once you get into, there's like, they're, they're clearly doing it at least somewhat for the heads, the recording heads and producing heads. Cause they start talking about uh, equipment and stuff and be like, yeah, I recorded this on a like blank microphone <laughs> and we did the like the breaking down the kinds of amps and stuff. And I was like, all right, all right. But the, <laughs> the anecdotes were, were pretty interesting. And I think it's a, at least a decent like sketch of, of, I was about to call him Richard Rubin, but his name's Frederick, mm. <laughs> which, which is really important oh. to note too, is that he's Fre Frederick J. Rubin, um, born March 10th, 1963 mm. in the uh, Lido beach area of Long Island. He's a Long Island boy. Um, spent his formative years listening to Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, and most importantly, ACDC. If there's one theme that runs through this book is that Rick Rubin's sort of er text of rock production and therefore kind of like music production in general is Highway to Hell. <laughs> and e like everything he does, he wants it to sound as powerful as Highway to Hell. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to that later. But he went to NYU. He enrolled in uh, 1981 as a philosophy major with law school in mind for his future career. But then he started going to hip hop shows at night. And he, most importantly uh, to, I think Chris, at least our interest, he DJed parties in his dorm room. <laughs> yes. I know that that's an essential part of the Ruben mythos is that a lot of the real early Def Jam stuff and his like early learning and self-teaching of, of basic recording and, and production techniques all happened in his NYU dorm room. Did you guys watch Shangri-La, the documentary? No, I didn't. So, so there's a four-part documentary on Rick Rubin on Showtime, and they do reenactments of this. Get out. <laughs> Are you kidding? And I, I will say, like, there's a lot of potential for cringe there, and they, they like, kind of nail it. Like, it's pretty good. A, a well-done reenactment is really, like, a, a, I feel like that's super rare. So that's, that's kind of cool. That's a very funny thing to invest time and energy into into doing a uh, reenactment of as opposed to like, you know, like a political historian thing being like, we absolutely must get a top tier <laughs> set designer to put together a circa 1981 NYU dorm room to show <laughs> Rick, young Rick Rubin slaving over his four track to get, you know, these, the beats right on these, on these early hip hop L or LL Cool J tracks. <laughs> it's good. I, I, I highly recommend it. Um, he said that his, his attitude at this point, he said, uh, I guess what I set, to, out to do as a fan was to make records that sounded like what I liked about going to a hip hop club and trying to document that scene. So he's basically just like a, a, a social enjoyer and therefore a booster, uh, a, a, maybe not a scene leader, but a, a scene supporter, a viber. Um, he met the Beastie Boys and started DJing for them by 1983 under the DJ name Double DJ Double R, <laughs> which is not it's not that catchy, but it's fine. Um, and he, he later says in the book that one of the reasons that he became friends and was DJing for him was because he owned a bubble machine, <laughs> which, you know, I would love I would like to see the bubble machine at an early BC boy show. Right. Um, and then he also met his uh, his first producer mentor, DJ Jazzy J. They produced a single together, which was It's Yours by uh, Tila Rock and his brother Special K from the group The Treacherous Three. And I was remarking earlier to Chris, I'm like. Damn, early hip hop names were so good. Mm -hmm. I mean, besides D DJ Double R, which is <laughs> simply fine. What was it? what was the name of that track? Uh, it's yours. It's yours. I'll pull up a little of that. I'm interested in how he describes that because you know, if, 
we're imagining an early hip hop, it's probably a lot based off of, you know, DJing, uh, you know, which is going to be just recreating and remixing samples and stuff together. So it's interesting to think of something like these tracks as something that you then have to go back to a studio and rebuild from the ground up to make it sound like somebody's just mixing samples and records together with somebody rapping over it, even if you're not doing that, you know, fully like live for the recording. The funny thing is, is that what he also really becomes is he becomes the popularizer, at least into out of just hip hop culture is the drum machine with the turntable. Definitely not the first. We should be clear. He's the Bowie of this, that he's (laughs) taking it out of the underground and into the mainstream. Yeah. Uh, So here's Tila Rock and Jazzy J. It's yours. more than a drum machine but people have never really even heard what that sounded like as the as the highlighted instrument so yeah it sounds revolutionary the crazy thing about the release of this record is that rick borrowed five thousand dollars from his parents to press it himself which uh i mean again (laughs) the history of literally the world is like who can borrow five thousand dollars from their parents (laughs) yeah it's a, like it's really is it, it really does make the difference sometimes between like doing a thing and not doing a thing. That being said, it's good that this record exists. Uh, he sold it. He he sold it to a label called Streetwise Records because he thought he basically didn't think he thought that he would make more money selling it to them than selling it himself. But it became a hit in New York, and he estimated they sold a hundred thousand copies of Jesus. of twelve inches. Of this record, which is absolutely insane, but definitely speaks to just the the interest, at least locally, in this stuff. This the stuff. <laughs> this hip new scene. I do want to go one one thing. I wanted to play the very beginning of this again and see. Okay. Is that basically the same as the instrumental break from uh, Paul Revere? That's. Damn similar, if not exactly yeah. the same. You are correct. <laughs> yeah. Just just thought I'd clock that. Yeah, sure. Um, and like at this point, when when Rick is in, you know, the studio making these hip hop albums, it he says later in the book that he does not know how to run an engineering board. Like he's not a knob turner, but at least he did know how to, if not program the drums, like he knew how to like work with it in the recording equipment. Is that right? That's correct. So w- w- we should probably define the distinction is that, you know, please <laughs> there's let's call th- three to four. Uh, you know, if we're doing our uh, quad graph of producers, you get this one producer who Rick is known later for, which is that an engineer does most of the work and he comes and checks it and occasionally says, ah, that song's not working. Rewrite the bridge. 
Mm-hmm. In this stage, he's more like what we call a hip hop producer, which is that he's writing the beats, but somebody's engineering it and doing all the technical things. Mm-hmm. On the other side of this, you have like a Steve Albini who we should know refuses to call himself a producer, but he mm-hmm. does not give input on the music. He just is an interface between the technology and the band. And then you have like a, I like to use John Feldman as uh, an example from a uh, Goldfinger who does mm-hmm. like the later Blink-182 stuff. He, band comes up with a song. He's like, okay, I'll rewrite it. And just doesn't matter what song you bring him. He's going to rewrite it in full. Got it. That's helpful. Yes. I kind of, I, that that's helpful to, to conceptualize because I mean, the, the bigger conversation I want to have about Rick Rubin is just like, what is a producer? <laughs> because <laughs> the, even despite having an entire book compiled of anecdotes from people from various parts of, you know, from various times talking to various journalists and outlets of like what it's like to record with Rick Rubin, it's still not 100% clear <laughs> yes, what, yes. what he does uh, or what he's actually doing. So we'll, We'll get we'll get more into that as we get into the the different artists. And but. this is also like one of the eternal conflicts of of pop and rock music is bands and producers expecting different things from each oh, other yeah. and not really knowing what they're. It's either uh, a producer who expects a band to work a specific way. I'm thinking like talking about the Peps, like Andy Gill recording mm-hmm. the first Red Hot Chili Peppers albums, or oh, bands. Yeah going in and expecting different things out of their producers, like the many people who have complained about Steve Albini's production yes. style, where he uh, you know, plays Candy Crush on his phone after he's done setting up the microphone. I, I thought it was, uh, it, it was uh, Wars, Wars with, with Friends. friends. Yes. 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 You, know, you know this. I'll tell you a great story when we're done about this. Okay, great. Well, we can talk more about <laughs> Albini sometimes. People are yeah. mad that he's like not you know, hands on knobs the entire time, but he's mm-hmm. he's more like, look, I set up the microphones perfectly. What more do you want from me? I mean, that's, that's why Rick Rubin seems to maybe be besides his sort of es- musical essence influencing things uh he also seems to just be you kind of know what you're getting when you hire him which is like this sort of spiritual guru mm-hmm. uh like you, he's not necessarily you're you're still going to need to get you know budget to hire an, an engineer but he like he's going to be like sh- your your shepherd your Yes. Your uh, your guy taking taking you from one stage to another, but we'll we'll, well do yeah, that let's hear, later. Let's hear more about that. Yeah, so he meets Russell Simmons. Um, Russell Simmons at that point is a local promoter, but he's already the quote focal point of the scene. Um, I know. And is that are that are those Russell's own words or other people <laughs> about him? That's other people about okay. him. Um, I mean, I, I would buy it. I just as a promoter, I assume that Russell has very high <laughs> yeah. opinions of his own <laughs> of himself as well. Of, of course, the promoter would be like, yes, I am, I the, am focal the focal point, point. of yeah, the scene. It all flows through me, of course, obviously. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I would just assume that, uh, especially like this era of the, the hip-hop crossover from, you know, kind of niche thing into a mainstream uh, phenomenon, I would imagine that there are a lot of unreliable narrators. <laughs> yes. In, well, in it also, scene. but they, they, that was their big thing, though, is like that whole thing with how much Rick Rubin loved kayfabe and everything, and that, uh, yes, was, like, true. that he loved, you know, he always said you have to create spectacle, like he was on to all this way before Trump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, Trump's been doing that for himself since the like early 70s. I mean, they're, yeah. maybe they're on similar wavelengths. Yes, yes, yeah, I think that's a good correction. Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> They, so they founded uh, Def Jam together, basically uh, under the kind of mutual understanding that they 
could take care of their artists and they could get the job done of recording and distributing records. It seems like it was just like two guys who both had a good ear and also like could do business, which is not, I feel like it's maybe rarer than you would hope in like a creative field, especially the the way Rick Rubin himself in an interview characterized this. He said everyone was, is basically just like a pat, like hip hop as a scene was a passion project. Like no one expected to make, money everyone was just doing it because they liked it not because they thought it was a career you cut there was no such thing as like a hip-hop careerist at this time it was cool it was cool it was a cool thing cool dudes did it was just bubble bubble machines and and uh, turntables <laughs> just par- it was just partying really well, it, sa- it sounds like more than anything russell and rick were like on the same wavelength about yes. what this thing was yeah. And then the uh, the technical and, and business acumen flows f- from that. Yeah. And Russell was a little older, too. So, like, I mean, that's the other thing is, like, Rick is like a baby. He's like 20 years old. Yeah. He's in his fucking dorm room. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they they plucked LL Cool J basically out of the slush pile, mostly because they were just like, I don't know. There's like something about this guy. Like, we keep listening to his demo. We can't, like, put it down. It's not like. It's not good exactly, but like this guy's got something. Well, I would say the thing about LL Cool J is that the ladies love him (laughs) and he's cool. You you know, it's a fun fun thing I've learned from uh, podcast production. We had uh, Jelani Cobb on a production uh, podcast at my old recording studio and he went to high school with LL. And he's like, mm. he's like everyone in the high school knew LL was going to be famous. Like you were, there's zero people in that high school who would put money against that. That's so funny. Sometimes it, they, you just meet a guy like that. Yeah. What's he up to lately? I feel like I haven't heard from the land of, of LL in quite some time. I feel like he hosts award shows occasionally. It's like a mm. thing he does. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he kind of faded away without getting washed, which is about mm-hmm as best you can do for a guy who's been in the business that long, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. Looks great. Um, Right. Uh, (laughs) Can we listen to I Need a Beat? Because that was the first basically big Def Jam single. Yes. This is LL Cool J's I Need a Beat. I mean that's a that's a program drum. <laughs> it's so insistent and foregrounded. Yeah, uh, I love it. I love how like just raw and aggressive those drum machine sounds are. Because you know this would sound fucking amazing, blasted out of like speakers outside in New York. Like it almost seems like specifically not designed to like yeah. stand out in that kind of environment. So good. Yeah, this would sound amazing blasted through a hi-fi. Yeah, I I have, like, memories since I grew up right outside the city of, like, coming here and, like, driving down things like Delancey Street and hearing things like this blasting and just, like, you'd feel so alive. Like, I just, like, I'm like, I have to be here. This is so insane. Um, 
this is not related to Rick Rubin necessarily, but there's Thurston Moore uh, at one point put together this book that was just about the art of like mixtapes mm. and also, you know, everything related, just like listening to music, sharing music. And he had shared a band anecdote that like Sonic Youth was like heading out on tour and he was given like a little bit of uh, extra band money to buy a stereo for the car. And he like went to Delancey Street and bought like the most banging stereo he possibly could that like lit <laughs> up and shit and was basically the size of a small toddler and could like barely fit in the van with everyone. And he was like sharing how uh, like he, he like pops it in <laughs> between the driver and the passenger seat <laughs> and everyone's just like, what the fuck is this? And he plays. So I can't remember what what uh, rap record he plays. And then everyone is just like, I don't know, man, like uh, anyone got like a Beatles tape or something like <laughs> this is like kind of loud and aggressive. Right. Anyway, that the mid 80s <laughs> seemed to be r really the time for this adjustment of vibes, a vibe <laughs> adjustment. Uh, I'm trying to figure out exactly what type of drum machine he's using on this. Thing. I believe it's an 808. I, I is it an 808? I feel like yeah, because because the, uh, the, the the bass drum has the sustain. The 909 has uh, no sustain. I just always feel like the snares aren't that that um, aren't, aren't that insistent on an 808. Well, well, an interesting thing with that too is these are early Andy Wallace mixes. I maybe not the first songs, and so Andy Wallace. Very famously, one of the first people who learned how to sample snares and trigger them off other snares in his mixes, which made Andy Wallace the biggest mixer in rock because that's how you get crisp sounds in rock. Mm, uh, pioneer. Great. Um, so at this point, we've got the LL hit. Uh, he starts working with Run DMC, who are already, I think, have definitely like made a name for themselves a little bit, but uh, Rick's big, big idea, big suggestion was uh, doing the Walk This Way collaboration with Aerosmith. I feel like we've already talked about this. When because we did, talked um, about Aerosmith, yes. Because we did uh, uh, Joe Perry's book, and it, at least the the standard narrative that it, it seems to be is that Run DMC as a group were not super psyched. Aerosmith were extremely psyched because I think they saw they're like, ah yes, the the sweet smell of uh, of renewed relevance. Like I can I can almost taste it. Um but that that was a Rick Rubin uh suggestion of a of a collaboration which, you know, created a uh, huge success for Run DMC. They were the first hip hop album to reach Billboard's top ten. First hip hop album to get a five star review from Rolling Stone, which I suppose back in the day was the uh, the old ten mm -hmm. from Pitchfork. Yes. <laughs> now, now I don't know what we have. What's what is the best? What is the? I get it's like mm. Anthony Fantano. Yeah, it's Anthony right? Fantano, Fantano being like, I like this one. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good Fantano. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if he uses a rating system or not. He does. He wears a shirt. He, he, he gives a number and he wears a shirt. I, okay. I, I, I've come late in my 40s to watching Anthony Fantano a lot. So Anthony Fantano, a number of people recommended you listen to our show. Please listen. Please come on. <laughs> I am not above begging for clout. <laughs> you got to You got to get a little a crumb of clout, you know, yeah, like, please, like Aerosmith. Uh, a, a crumb of clout. Like Aerosmith collaborating with Run DMC. Um, we're the Run DMC in this situation. Are we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, we're that. the we're the hungry up and comers uh, uh, knocking at uh, knocking at, at Fantano's door. door. <laughs> oh boy. Um. That, so then we have licensed ill. So uh, I'll I'll let you I'll let you have it. It seems like this. You know, BC Boys. I think the the thing that aligned them with Rick Rubin is that they transitioned from like hardcore and punk rock to hip hop. 
And Rick Rubin was, you know, a, an original rock guy and seemed to basically be interested in, in hip hop because it was countercultural in the way like punk used to be, is my understanding. <laughs> Perhaps his, his greatest insight uh, is looking around in 1981 and being like, you know what? Punk's kind of washed. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Which the punks themselves would maybe never realize, depending on uh. what <laughs> avenue of punk you would go down. I mean, but we're going to be talking all about that starting on the next episode. Mm. Anyway, for the time being, here is Ryman and Steelin, the opening track off PC Boy's first album. Uh, what more can you say? What an introduction to a band. Uh, this thing just still blows me away. I love this song. I love the way it sounds. I love this album. Let's go. I mean, he's, it's just like everything that he's been working on up to this and just all like really just so just keyed in. It, I mean, the thing that really stands out to me now when I listen to this is that it's based on that, you know, when the levee breaks sample yep. that he has somehow like removed all groove from it and drum machinified it. Yet it's still even with that like robotic, like swingless uh, way that he's put it in. It's still grooves so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like somebody like once pointed out that like music has reactions to how much swing and uh, drag and groove at times, and this is when music gets rigid for a while, um, and then you get all those really cringy uh, stickers that were around New York around this time that uh, drummers do it with rhythm. Every drummer hated drum machines in this era because of this. Oh wow. Uh, they're cool though. Drum machines are yes, cool. Agree. Love drum machines. All the all the drummers gotta to unionize against uh, automation, of course. <laughs> yes, well, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, here's my uh, thing: is that drum machines are cool on the record, and live drums are cool in the dr- in the, in the performance. Because mm-hmm. when I see the BC Boys play, I would rather see them play if I ever got to see them play. Yeah. I would want to see them play this with a live drummer behind it, and it would sound awesome. Twood. Uh, the other thing about this is like just coming out of the gate with so much for like three like nerdy, you know, Brooklyn Jewish kids just coming out of the gate with so much swag, just insisting you ask, who the fuck are these kids <laughs> to be like presenting themselves like you should already fucking know who the Beastie Boys are. Not only should you already know, but they're already in your house robbing you. <laughs> uh, they're drinking all your beers and stealing all your porno mags and, and just generally wrecking up the place. They're, it's it's just like it's like opening a uh, like putting on this record is like opening a little Pandora's box and these three gremlins just jump out and start <laughs> harassing you. That's good. I think I think Jesse, you pointing out the like the wrestling thing where like it's not 
it seems like the the attitude that not every rapper has to be like the the like hero mm-hmm. not that everyone's pretending to be a hero but like that these guys are like yeah they they are gremlins they are goblins uh they're they're like kind of nasty yes and uh and that's it like interesting like honestly hearing this stuff especially the way they have like the interplay of the verses and stuff like they, it sounds almost like a, like literally comedic yes like and it's especially like yeah, it's like a bit. It's like a sketch, and uh, and I feel like that's legible to people in a way that maybe rap wasn't necessarily before. Is like, oh, it's like three guys like do, like telling a story, and they're like playing off each other and their characters. I mean, it. I mean, if, I can't help but imagine that you know their Jewish heritage comes into it because it's like a vaudeville. It's a bit like <laughs> mm. a vaudeville bit filtered through uh, hip hop. And I mean, it would make sense that that something like that would become so uh, you know immediately accessible. I'm just imagining the the beasties performing at um one of those uh like summer camps like the uh um uh what am I thinking the the dirty dancing oh like, yeah like one of those borscht <laughs> borscht belt summer camp yes, <laughs> yes. thank you <laughs> uh I mean the Beastie Boys really have uh one of the most amazing and tragic like career arcs and talk about wrestling because mm-hmm. they have the um, the face turn they start off as these little shits. They wanted to name their album Don't Be a Epsler, uh, which I'm very glad that oh, they yeah. chose not to uh, oh, because I would hate to have to cancel this album. Uh, <laughs> and without doing it cynically or for uh, any kind of ulterior motives, they lear- they did a growth, they did a learn, <laughs> and they grew and became like genuine woke bays over the next 20 years <laughs> and became like the, the big free Tibet, like dating... Riot Girls. Yeah, uh, uh, well, well, I mean, literally writing the most popular, most sexist song of an era to marrying yes. like the foremost figure of a wave of feminism. Yes, <laughs> that's and if anything, that just show. I think I don't think I have the direct quote from the book, but they said that they were just like, no, we were just like lit- we were literally just joking. Like all the all the like immature little gags from License Dale, they're like, we were literally just kidding around because we thought it was funny. It's I've, not evidence of any like deep seated yeah. hatred beliefs. I've also heard them uh, say that it was like their their, their immediate rise to superstardom was so uh, confusing <laughs> to them. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember the exact quote. I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, you know. We went over the course of six months from when this album came out to you know opening for Madonna on yeah. her big tour. I, I, to, I by getting making an album like trying to inhabit the personas of people who would be shoving us to into lockers uh, <laughs> in high school to those very same people who were shoving us into lockers, yes. screaming along to our lyrics in the front row of the concerts. I, I once was drinking in a bar and met a guy who was a roadie on that Madonna tour, and he said that they literally walked off stage and they're like what have we done? Like oh, that first night, like that they just couldn't believe that the, this is character of their lives has blown up. Yep. That's insane. Uh, we love the BC boys. Yeah. We uh, do. Um, although the, the one thing that is pointed out that is worth talking about is that BC boys used to have a female member, yes. Kate oh, yes. Schellenbach and, uh, Rick Rubin pretty much said it's me or her, mm-hmm. uh, which listen, it was that very nice, no. Did they feel terrible about it? Apparently, yes. They felt very bad. Uh, Kate went on to to drum for Luscious Jackson. Um, but here's the thing. Rick was correct in thinking that the way the Beastie Boys would become successful was as boys. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
for better or for worse. It would not have worked as the Beastie folks. The, be- <laughs> <laughs> the Beastie people. Yeah. The Beastie people. Yes. The Beastie people. Um, but that do- that does characterize. I would say Rick Rubin. He he's definitely worked with some women, but he is a he is a boys boy. Oh yeah, yeah. And it, it isn't often uh, that he he does work with the ladies. Um, Though it is he, funny that he got some of his best producer Grammys for Adele and the Dixie Chicks. Dixie Chicks, yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, but he, like he, he 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 does have a you know I wouldn't I will never put me two accusations, but there there's been some women that have very much said that he is the type of man in power that you don't want to work with. Um, that he does right. not have good vibes towards women, and yeah, he is he is a macho producer. Yeah. Although I'm like. I'm thinking, I'm just like, is there, is, is there a producer that women like that I'm like, Jack Antonoff. They love Jack they Antonoff. They love Jack Antonoff and uh, Mark Ronson. Oh, yes. Yes. What? yes, we just listened to a Mark Ronson song this past weekend. Mm. Ladies love Mark Ronson. <laughs> L-L-M. <laughs> um, uh, the next uh, album to know is, uh, especially for, for you, Jesse, because it sounds like Public Enemy was a big oh, yeah. big part of, of your ute. Uh, he executive produced It Takes a Nation and Billions to Hold Us Back. He did not... Pr- he was not hands-on in the stew, but I think that was maybe his first executive so, producing credit. So, so the way I understand it from extensive research is that uh, <laughs> he was like what he became for a lot of things, which is really the guy who pops by and says, you're on to something, this not so much. And mm-hmm. just kind of guided them to trying to get that sound to be what it was. And, and you know, like there, there's very few artists who like you're like yeah there's not even an imitation of this that sounds like it and like mm. that record like who's ever even imitated that record and done a poor job at it like mm-hmm. it's unimitatable it's just unbelievable do you want to yeah wanna i'm, I'm ch- queuing up some, something right now uh this is public enemies don't believe the hype don't 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 What you're looking for, the same thing. It's a new thing. Check out this. I bring all the rope below the level because I'm living low next to the base. Come on. Turn up the radio. They're claiming I'm a criminal. But now I wonder how some people never Sorry, I'm just laughing because the, the uh, first comment on this YouTube video is somebody from 11 months ago uh, posting the COVID-19 anthem. Under don't believe the hype. And then, oh, God. And then dozens of replies arguing about false information and, and conservative media and false news and fake news and shit under it. You know a YouTube comment is good when it has like 300 replies? Yes. And you just know you're like somewhere in there like someone is saying some absolutely wild shit. But I don't mean to take away that, that uh, idiot's uh, comments from... Public enemy who should be listened to and respected. All the critics you can hang on my hold the rope, but they hope to the Pope and play it ain't dope. The follow of Farrakhan, he'll tell me that you understand until you hear the man. The book up the new school rap game. Writers treat me like Coltrane. I mean, it's interesting of him coming in as the executive producer on this because it definitely sounds like of, of his same school, but sonically different from what he's been working on here. A little more textured, a little more complicated. I mean, yeah. is, is Terminator X really shaping this? Do we know no, this? no, it's uh, Shockley's is the producer. Terminator X is the DJ. Uh, but the Shockley's famously, what they kind of did was they threw 
more instruments and samplers at the problem than anybody had at this point. And that's a lot of what makes this, this such a collage is that they just had more tools to do the bombast of sound. That's so funny that it's at a time when it's just like, I've got to, I found some more knobs. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, there's different periods <laughs> of music. Like, you know, the, one of the things Rick Rubin is really known for is um, being in the loudness war in that Metallica yeah. record that takes it too far. There is, you know, I, I often quote a cringy Fall Out Boy song. Um, this ain't a scene, it's a goddamn arms race. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good song. <laughs> but there is a lot of truth to that, that like there becomes points in music where you're having an arms race of certain things and hip hop and technology in the late 80s. Yeah, that's it's the truth. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it totally makes sense. You know, what, the other group only has a, a, a nine-pad sampler and you're coming in with a 16-pad sampler? I mean, that's seven more sounds. Come on. That, that almost doubles the amount of uh, sonic texture you can put into it uh, into any given song. Uh, uh, more if you know how to use it. Rick Rubin has a whole section of his Wikipedia that is uh, just dedicated to the loudness wars. Yeah. But then right underneath that, the only other thing in his like uh, in that section is him. <laughs> he was charged with violating Hawaii's COVID-19 <laughs> yeah, 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 protocols. Yeah. <laughs> Although it seems like he was kind of railroaded there because it said that he was quarantining uh, after traveling to Hawaii during COVID and uh was walking alone on an unoccupied beach when a paparazzi like accosted him and took pictures and like reported him for being outside during quarantine. But if the beach was unoccupied and the only person there making it occupied was the paparazzi trying to get him, you yeah. know, I think Rick's in the clear there. Yes. <laughs> paparazzi r- runs right up to Rick Rubin and is like, you're not social distancing. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, anyway, Great shit. He this is a a bit that I did not realize that he contributed to was the uh, soundtrack to the less than zero movie, which actually seems kind of amazing. Like this is he first of all, he produces uh, the Bengals cover of Hazy Shade of Winter, which I love. Such Um, a great song. It's so good. And he did say that, um, you know, at at one point he was basically trying to, to to convince some of the Bengals to play their own instruments on the track. And they had been more or less bullied by record people saying that they weren't going to play on their tracks in the past. And so Rick said, he said, it made me realize that the music business is lousy at nourishing creative people, but my personality is pretty well suited for it. (laughs) I think that's a good, good point to pinpoint of like what he does in the studio, which is give artists confidence which I think is like actually kind of crucial to getting a good song and a good recording is like, I, it it seems at least from, you know, reading, especially reading all these books where people are talking about going to the studio for the first time, recording their first record and how intimidating it is and how, you know, industry people are there bothering you. The clock is ticking. You're aware of like how much money you're spending and like Rick Rubin as like a sort of force of like, helping it just like making it not shitty I think is maybe one of the more important things that he does and we you hear that again and again in this book this is uh what I consider to be his mark on music and it's a very interesting thing because like people really don't get this that like as somebody who's been around so many bands who are trying to do like that sophomore slump and all the things like what my last book on creativity and music is about is basically like the biggest mistake people make is like they think art is like entrepreneurship that the customer's right. You should appease the customer. But Ruben actually says the opposite. His 
really good quote is any commercial considerations get in the way. If you think about music that gets on the radio, you won't be using your own voice. It's most potent, sorry, potent form competing Mm -hmm. in concern about what others think get in the way of good music. And this is the thing I've seen all through my career is that every time you think about the audience, instead of whether you feel the song, that's the record that's going to fuck up real bad. Yeah. And that's the fuck the fans mindset. Yeah. You have to get into You got to be thinking about what you want to do, not what the fans want to hear. It's a hundred percent true. And and the funniest thing is people who don't create in that they don't get it. And then once you start doing it, it's like, sure, it doesn't work for everybody, but it's the only thing that does work. Mm. I mean, that's it. Obviously this is the eighties, which, you know, the technology was limited. The distribution was limited. You know, Mm -hmm. people weren't, obviously there was, there weren't, uh, you know, there wasn't streaming, there wasn't downloading of music, but like now I feel like it's more important than ever because there are even more distractions Mm -hmm. in terms of like the audience and the release and the marketing and all that stuff. And a whole, like whole genres of, of music that are built from the ground up specifically to appease like an audience conception of what they want vis-a-vis the algorithm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so like, I mean, who knows if that is going to long-term support or uh, uh, destabilize his thesis, but it certainly <laughs> oh. seems like the only way to make something that would stand out from everything else, especially when you are competing with a fire hose of, of stuff, you know, literally made to, for the, for an audience of robots there- that you got to think about what you want to hear. Well, there's an interesting thing with this. And, you know, I say this as like, I grew up being the punk kid who's like, fuck major labels. And then three years ago, I started working at Atlantic Records for a while. And they had me documenting them. And I thought the most interesting thing with this thing was, is that, yes, they will be like, hey, you know, if you work with this producer, they're getting a lot of stuff on the Lorem playlist. And the Lorem playlist is getting huge. But they always listened to the artist authentically saying like, no, I don't feel this. Now my emotions on it. And they did really put that first. And that was the most shocking thing I saw because I've been fed all my life. The story of the major label doing the things and putting down the artist. But like, it's funny that I think they've actually learned the lesson now in that we're in that era. Yeah. I mean, I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. It might be part of that whole thing where it's like the labels themselves might know that the only way to, they got to, to get somewhere is to stand out. Yeah, and I think Ruben is the leader of this thought that in spreads the idea virus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the the only other anecdote I want to share from the uh, Less Than Zero soundtrack production is that uh, Poison covered uh, rock and roll all night, <laughs> and uh, Rick Rubin shared that uh, C.C. DeVille's guitar was painted and had paint over the pickups. Uh, <laughs> Rick asked, does that affect the sound? And C.C. Uh, says, yeah, probably, but I owe it to my fans to play this guitar. <laughs> he, he, he is a known, like, subprime IQ person. <laughs> Look, that, that really uh, forces it. The fans are going to hear the paint job. They, they're gonna they're gonna feel the paint job. Yes, I mean the the funny thing is that you could also hear like Thurston Moore saying that, but he's like, yes, it does, and that's <laughs> yes. what I want. I need right. I need the paint I need the paint tuning on the guitar. <laughs> that's the only way that it's that's going to art. hum the right way when you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. When I when I smash this amp into it to get this uh the sound that I'm looking for. <laughs> 
Um, a couple other late 80s gems worth discussing. He uh, starts kind of moving away from hip hop because his whole thing, too, which I think is kind of important and valuable, is that like once he gets really into something and is known for a particular style for a particular genre, he gets bored and wants to switch it up. So he won't be known as just Rick Rubin, the hip hop guy. Um, so he produces Rain and Blood for Slayer. Uh, Carrie King, the Slayer guitarist, said uh, he thinks it was the first time people heard thrash music with clarity. And I think that's why it stands out in people's minds as one of the best. And that's where because the, the other thing we haven't really talked about is like the Rick Rubin minimalism thing mm-hmm. where he's he seems basically obsessed with just getting the most regular, like pure version of a song and not doing a bunch of tricks and not doing a bunch of not covering it up with a bunch of stuff but just having like just the most normal sounding (laughs) version of the song and having that be the the essence of what the band is doing so i you know what i'm not really a i haven't listened to slayer that much i feel like the kids are now wearing the slayer (laughs) t-shirts yeah again kardashians yeah their iconography is certainly uh has certainly uh maintained over time yeah let's put on some slayer uh, how about raining blood? Yeah, that's, that, that's rain and blood. The titu- that's the jam. Rain and blood. Well, yeah, it was almost titular. Raining blood off. Oh, raining rain in blood. blood. Yeah. Yeah. I see. I see. Uh, you know, a clever side in the way that they do that. <laughs> This type of uh, metal really isn't my thing, but damn if it isn't cool as hell. It's very yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah it's, da- it's I love danger in music, and I can appreciate danger, and that sounds so fucking dangerous. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about this record is uh, there's very few records that change the sound of a whole genre overnight, and this is one of them. Like, everybody hears this, and this is the only record they're referencing, and you can re- literally watch over the next three years every metal record get closer to the sound of this one. Mm. It's his first metal record he ever produces, which is just insane. But yet again, the other thing that we haven't discussed that he is insanely talented about is the producers and engineers he gets under him to do his work are always the best in the business. He, nearly everyone who's a star today uh, in rock came up under Rick Rubin. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be important to if you're just a vibe, not just a vibes guy, but if you're a vibes guy, someone does need to turn the knobs <laughs> yes, good. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I can see what also where it's funny because I think that these things would have seemed at the time about as far apart as possible. Uh, you know, 
this kind of uh, metal and, and hip hop, but you know, you can really sense where it would come from the same impulses. I mean, the way that he's they're drumming in this album does not sound that far off, other than like faster than how he would be pro- programming drum machines, and it probably was mm-hmm. uh, kind of an easy move for him to be like, oh great, now I can work with a drummer who can drum like a drum machine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Lombardo does also kind of revolutionize drumming in that machine way of that. His hits are so perfect. I When I saw him with the Misfits the last two years during those reunions, it literally sounds like a machine. Yeah. I literally cannot imagine drumming like that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a wild physical act. This is just like the classic, like, if a, if a boy brought this record home and your mom hears it <laughs> and it's like 1987 or whatever that you're just like, oh my God, what has happened to my son? I mean, yeah, the, the record cover for this, you know, it has the parental advisory on it and it's just like Baphomets <laughs> and like demons with goat ears wearing bishop miters and, and like scythes and stuff. I mean, it, it is the classic. Uh, this is, as you were saying, this is dangerous. Yeah, there's uh, all the all the stories of people going to see them live, and they're using all the Nazi imagery, and the parents rip their kids right out of there yeah. the second the first song starts. Mm. I will note, perhaps it's even a bit here, but on Slayer's official channel, comments are turned off for Raining Blood. Honestly, so. probably for the best uh, moderation-wise. Yes. You, you know, I have a thing like about like Pantera that, uh, you know, we should have known that he was a Nazi since he was every Nazi's favorite band. We also know who every Nazi's second favorite band is. Mm. Aren't the Slayer guys good, though? No. Oh, or am I thinking of the Anthrax? I'll tell a story off air that I won't tell on air. Or am I thinking of the Anthrax? The Anthrax guys, the Anthrax are, good, guys right? are good. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, I mean, well, you, you know, they, they, they did I'm the man. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, sorry, I, I'm totally wrong about the Slayer guys. I might you're, just be getting them mixed the, the, up with the, Anthrax. Again, this mm, corner of metal is not yeah, my thing. Yeah, right, not mine right. either. Um, sh- I don't know. If, should we discuss uh, uh Danzig? Oh, oh yeah. I I'm not. I'm totally out of my depth with uh with Glenn Danzig stuff. But uh, I Rick mean, started he- produce. Rick produced a bunch of his albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, post post Misfits. So, um, should we should we sample something from there? Uh, yeah. Let's listen to something off of Danzig's Danzig. And in fact, let's listen to the fucking Danzig song, Mother. Yeah, uh, Danzig. What is there to say about him? He's a he's a demon man. <laughs> very, 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 very short, lots of attitude, r- ridiculous stage riders. But, uh, wait, I need to hear what's on the stage. That you're apparently not allowed to look at him in the backstage. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, he did get knocked out that time, if we all recall. Yeah. Uh, he's um he's the real version of uh what uh, what does Tex say at the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> What a fucking cool song. The song song goes. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way. Tell your children not to hear my words, what they mean, what they say. Mother, Can you keep them in the dark for life? Can you have a Yeah. Oh yeah, he yeah, totally. I mean, he did that. He did it all Elvis live stream. No kidding. It's it's one of the worst things I've ever watched in my entire <laughs> life. But you can understand why he did it. 
Yes, yes, I, I totally do He's understand. Like dark Harry Cuomo. Uh, he. Uh, this is the interesting thing when you brought up with uh, the Highway to Hell thing. Is this is the beginning of that template for Ruben? Is that he starts mm. doing the Highway to Hell thing all the time in the yeah. treatment? It's the dead drums, the guitars that have just a medium amount of gain, and the vocal is out there with no reverb. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that is also one of the things that makes this song so cool is that you can very just crisply hear everything that's going on, and everything yeah. that's going on is insanely cool. The, riff, the riffs rock. His voice is incredible. We love the, the lyrics. I'm just thinking about the difference between this and Slayer, the Slayer song. Two songs that rock. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I just feel like the Slayer song is like the guy who's bragging he's going to beat you up, and this is the guy who will actually beat you up. Well, it's, it's also <laughs> I, actually I love that um, minimalism of maximalism. You know, Slayer yeah. is filling up the reel, whereas this is like minimal overdubs. Yeah. You know, even though the harmony like barely happens and Danzig can say a lot of things about him. The man can sing and do some harmonies. <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, here we go. Mother. It's Walk My Way by Glenn Danzig. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Radio Chris. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's a good NPR you got there. I think maybe it is important to note, you know, I was reading this book and seeing what Rick did. It's also maybe important to note what he didn't do. He was not doing 80s hair metal. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, it's, I feel like that's important to note as well, is that he was an antidote that eventually became the standard once everyone realized that that might be cooler and more chill than whatever was happening in in certain corners of rock and roll yeah he seems like a king at least for his first you know decade or so in the the business of like knowing which way the wind's blowing yeah because uh you know if it's 1989 you do not want to be putting your money on hair metal you want to be putting your money on uh like cool darker stuff Mm -hmm. yep um so we've reached the end of the 80s uh it really took him four years to become like the guy like the the one of the the go-to producers of hip-hop and rock uh he also parted ways with russell simmons uh amicably they i think were going in different directions and realized that they could end the business and stay buds and that's what i believe they did so rick moved to la he started deaf american um, which I think started at, at getting distributed through Geffen and then switched to Warner Brothers because uh, Geffen balked at distributing the Ghetto Boys album mm-hmm. that Rick helped produce. And he was like, I will go with the record label that, uh, you know, st- stands by their men. <laughs> um, but uh, this, this is when he, he starts working with the Chili Peppers for the first time. Oh, yeah. Which is a long and fruitful uh, on an, I was about to say on and off collaboration. They create. They sold so many albums together. I was so I was nice. trying to like da- look down the the go down some of the stats for this, and I think like the albums that Rick Rubin produced with the Chili Peppers have sold something like a hundred million copies or something like yeah. that. That's, that's probably bananas. That's probably easily correct. And it, yeah. it it is. Uh, but it's funny too that uh, so when this starts, it's when he really starts. Everybody he puts under him on a Red Hot Chili Peppers record becomes a superstar producer and mm-hmm. le- and leaves him as fast as they can. 
Because the other mm. thing is just like when you're a really great producer working under the guy getting the credit, you're pretty pissed yeah, off. Yeah, you. <laughs> it's like okay, it's like kind of like what they say like with working a presidential campaign. It's like, well, this is the last job I take like that. I got the resume, top of the resume point. <laughs> yeah, I gotta go start my <laughs> podcasting company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah everyone's tired of like uh like lifting bricks and like uh going to the well like uh uma thurman in uh um kill bill she's <laughs> she's tired of working for pi May. she wants to learn the the exploding heart technique and get the fuck out of there <laughs> who wouldn't um but i i really like what anthony kita said about uh meeting and starting to work with rick at this time he said, we didn't know him and he seemed more on the demonic side of life than the explosion of positive energy that the Red Hot Chili Peppers have always been perpetrators of. We didn't know if he would be able to blend in well, what with Slayer and the boiling goat heads of Danzig and all, but he turned out to be a completely open-minded, free-flowing, comforting spirit. If Baron von Munchausen were able to ejaculate the Red Hot Chili Peppers onto a chessboard, Rick Rubin would be the perfect player for that game. Wow. <laughs> That's a that's a quote. Keeds always surprising me with his erudition. Baron Munchausen. What did he had, <laughs> had he just seen the Gilliam movie? Maybe <laughs> I don't know. I just like for me it, it is funny that at that point Keeds was positioning the Red Hot Chili Peppers as like we're positive guys, and I'm like Keeds, you are a demon. Yes. I've read I've read your book. Yeah. You are a sicko. Yeah. You, you say that you're you're sharing positive vibes, and I do think that's somewhat true. But like, come on, dude, be serious. <laughs> You've got some darkness flowing through you, my friend. Yes. He is He is kissed by the darkness himself, even if he does not want to admit it. Not all devils that come in the form of goat heads. Sometimes yes. they come in the form of a, a shirtless dude. Gyrating. Uh, you know, honestly, Ketis <laughs> and the, the, the peps are like kind of the great synthesis between like the Beastie Boys and Danzig, you know? Mm. Ooh, that's interesting. The jo- yeah. Jokers, yeah, the, the like little Joker gremlins and like the 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 demon muscular, man, yeah, muscular, muscular demons. shirtless demon man. Yeah, that's a good that's a good uh, analysis. I think. Um, should we listen to something from Blood Sugar Sex Magic? Yeah, I'm vamping a little because I just can't even dis- think of like what the most Ruben esque track. Uh, you, you know, what 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 is? Oh, I kind of want to go with Suck My Kiss. Suck My Kiss is really good. There's another that I'm like, man, there, there's... Uh, let's, let's do Suck My Kiss. I feel like this has the good the good aggressiveness of a Ruben track with kind of, for this album, minimalism, and then the uh, the, the positivity, I guess. that <laughs> In his own way, the positivity that, that Keeds is trying to put across. Sure. Well, I'm sailing... See, like, even right there in these drum breaks, you can still hear that, like, totally straight, uh, even though they're the fucking Chili Peppers, they're funky as hell. He's got them doing that, like, locked-in straight rhythm right here. Yeah. In the super clean vocal, 
you understand yeah. you understand exactly what Anthony Kiedis is saying. And, and, you for know, better or for worse. I don't as well. Great performances from notoriously one of the worst singers live of all time. <laughs> like truly, I can remember being a kid going to see them at Lollapalooza. Like you could sing that bad and be in a band this big. <laughs> um, this is another one of those records, though, that becomes a template of a sound that just everybody steals. Everybody's drums doesn't sound like this. This record comes out. Everybody's drums sound like this. I, some of it is also that this record makes Brendan O'Brien's career. Brendan O'Brien becomes a super producer on his own and probably one of the probably the third biggest producer up to Ruben and Rock after this. Mm. Originally in the Georgia Satellites. Huh. Uh, that would be a band that I believe my father was very much into. Same. That was like 80s college rock, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Kind of like 80s if you were like uh, leaned a little frat boy. Yeah, my my dad's pretty, uh, bless him. I would I would describe him as like a pretty regular normie guy with a sense of fun. Nice. <laughs> he was not listening to Public Enemy in, uh, in, his, in his 20s. Uh, I just think, find this album... Uh, so interesting. And we've talked about the Peppers now twice before. Uh, no, we're once gonna, before. He, once he, before. And we got to talk about Flea eventually. We're going to have to do Flea's book because it's mm. it's just got to happen. I, and I feel like this album is tainted by its association with them because the Peppers are like horny up into this and then they do this album and then immediately start getting corny again. And the mm. long tail of their decline into corniness is, is longer than their ascent into goodness. But this one album just rips so hard yeah and it, it rips enough to excuse any of the corniness in it or make it feel like singular and something that is like earned i guess i don't know i just think they're fascinating i, I at least in my book they earn so much goodwill from having this one perfect record uh that it, they're just that's why they're an, an object of, of constant fascination from me and then also like i mean we're going to talk about this you know one of ruben's you know to to build believe his detractors mortal sins is engaging in the the loudness war stuff and the chili peppers arcs un, under his tutelage is that arc of mm-hmm. these albums getting uh you know kind of cornier and drippier and also more compressed and just like generally uh less inspired or unique than this uh over the course of the 90s uh but i guess that's the story that we're we're going on right molly yeah that is, that is the that's the narrative Cap, capital N. Uh, the other thing I wanted to note from these recording sessions is that uh, Keita says that Rick Rubin would show up, lay down on the couch, and appear to take a nap, but he was actually absorbing every note and arrangement like a sponge. Yes, the, a hero of inaction. Uh, <laughs> this is, this is one of the things people love to detract from him. But you, I, I once had drinks with the uh, Mars Volta right after they did that first record with him, and. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they were very, they, so they, the re- records they had done before that were with Ross Robinson, who I worked for for a long time. And mm-hmm. Ross is like the most energetic spirit who's proactive, touching things, running around the room, screaming at you that you're doing great and like just the opposite of Rick Rubin. So they get there, but then they realize that like what he's doing is he's listening to the music the way it a constant. And a lot of making records is not adding a variable to the situation is like mm. you have your constants and you can make a judgment from it. And his judgment is he lays down, gets comfortable and listens to music like he did in his room when he heard highway to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, I, another 
piece, I cannot remember who said this about him, but like the bassist in a band is worrying about the bass part. The singer mm-hmm. is worrying about what they're going to sing. He's the only person who's worrying about all of it and mm-hmm. how it all comes together. And you can't hear it unless you listen to it. And if you're like chatting and like, you know, doing a bunch of other shit, maybe you're not hearing all all of what needs to be heard. And if he needs to look like he <laughs> need, is napping in order to do that, let the man nap. I mean, and again, it's, it's just a fu- such a funny contrast to uh, Andy Gill, who we love, but is <laughs> the fussy British perfectionist and yes. was the exact opposite of what uh, the Chili Peppers needed which was not somebody to come in and uh, be all over them being like this is here is how I make a record and I will make you do it this way. But somebody to lay down and let them do their thing and then be like, here is how we're going to put it all together. Right. Right. Um, Let's, let's move on. We can revisit. I feel, I do feel like the first, the first cut is the deepest with the, the chili peppers, but he obviously makes a a bunch more shit with them that that we should listen to like maybe something off of Californication just to like track these, these contrasts. Yeah. 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 Do you want to do that now? Yeah. Let's do it now. Unless you have more like mid stories from the mid nineties with Ruben. Um, I mean a a few more for nineties that I think are maybe worth talking about. He does, he gets hired to, uh, produce Mick Jagger's third solo album, which is kind of like a low key disaster (laughs) in terms of the interactions because Mick is not used to people telling him something is not good enough. And so Rick Rubin, who's a big, I I don't think I'd mentioned this before, but like he's like a a big pre-production guy, which is also an important thing to note is that he's not just like showing up the same day as you in the studio and like crafting the songs as you're recording them. He wants them done, which I I think is, you know, clearly uh, 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 it's an easy way, not an easy way, but it's a a good way to figure out whether a song is good (laughs) is to get it done in advance. Sounds simple, but I feel like clearly it's not. Um, but he, so he's working with Mick Jagger on these songs and, uh, he, he tells them, uh, he tells them that some songs are not, not up to par. And he said, he recalls that Mick Jagger's face fell. It was probably the first time someone criticized his work in 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) So this is also an interesting thing of what he brings and changes music with too, which is that he becomes famous for asking an artist to write two and a half records for every one they put out. So you're mm-hmm. writing 30 songs for a 12 song record. So he famously, when he goes and does the black Sabbath reunion record, um, he's like, okay, I need 30 songs. And there he's, and so his quote on this is they probably wrote 20. We recorded 16. There's eight on the album. Yeah. Right. And that's how he gets a high quality of output is that he knows you need lots of skeletons to dress up and then work with it. Then that some of them aren't going to go so well. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I, it's I've I feel like that has echoed in someone like a uh, Taylor Swift career who seems to like have a huge graveyard of songs. Although now she seems to just be putting all of them out. Oh, <laughs> I feel like much to like, my dismay. I yeah. mean, I would be impressed to hear if she uh, if she actually wrote like a hundred songs during the folklore sessions and was like, and I got two albums out of it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the other nineties Rick Rubin story that I just wanted to note was reviving Johnny Cash's career, um, which he was like basically Johnny Cash's guy, uh, from the early nineties until his death in 2004, three. I forget. Um, is, is Rick Rubin responsible for the Johnny Cash hurt? Yeah, he is. I mean, technically, Trent Reznor is responsible. Sure, but like, he put those two (laughs) things together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a uh, Ruben produced album. I I Um, thought it was interesting on Reddit that they, when 
they did a poll on Reddit Music about the best song uh, that's a cover, but the better than the original version. Right. That's the song, like, overwhelmingly won by a landslide. Which is kind of amazing if you think about it, of all the covers that exist in the world. And it does seem like kind of a unanimous decision. I think I saw someone on Twitter posing a similar question and they basically said, don't answer her. Like, I'm I'm bored. Like, we already know that that's like the answer. Like, give me something else. I'm bored. It's like it's at this point, it's enough of a meme uh, that I feel like it's like one of those things that you need to disqualify. You can't say you can't say Johnny Cash hurt for best covers. Tell me one I haven't heard. Yeah. Give me something new. Give me something Um, new. And he, again, you know, to go back to the theme of like being a confidence booster for artists, that's kind of what he was doing for Johnny Cash, who was basically kind of cast out to uh, dry, cast out to dry, cast aside, uh, left hanging by his record label, just like not supported as an artist. And he, I thought it was interesting what Rick Rubin said. He said, uh, he told him, "I, I could do what felt right and we would take plenty of time and all the money it took to do the album we wanted to do and the promotion budget was unlimited. <laughs> well, I mean, so, under those conditions. Perfect perfect conditions for an album. <laughs> I guess you could still make an album that sucked under those conditions, but Johnny Cash can definitely come through. Uh, and the other interesting thing is that the second album that they did together got alt-rock radio uh, play, airplay, but not country. And in response to that, after they you know won a bunch of awards and sold a bunch of copies, they took a uh, full-page ad out in a Billboard magazine featuring the classic photo of Johnny Cash with his middle finger aimed at the camera with a caption that read, American Recordings, which this, that's what uh, Rick Rubin's company at this point has changed from Deaf American to American Recordings. American Recordings and Johnny Cash would like to acknowledge the Nashville Music Establishment and Country Radio for your support. very good which is uh very uh that's very country rebel of him yes uh now before i play californication i do want to say one thing based on what you were just saying about american recordings and not deaf america yes is that he held a funeral for the word deaf because it got overused he did right and he when it got accepted into the merriam webster's dictionary he like bought a casket and killed and buried the word deaf which you know al sharpton came and do you like spoke yeah. eulogy, uh, yep. but which feels very dramatic because isn't that just a, sh- uh, a shortening of definitely? Uh, Maybe is it, is it overused? He has an explanation for it in the Shangri-La doc that I feel like is not bad. <laughs> like it's like, okay. But I remember when I watched that funeral, I was like, this is really stupid. Uh, <laughs> it's fairly extra. Yeah. I'm trying to look. I mean, it's this is you know one of the most Caucasian things you could Google. Is like, what does deaf mean? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 when I think of typical Caucasian, I think of this joke of the early HBO show Dream On, and the white guy says, "Man, this deaf dip is deaf." Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Very good. <laughs> uh, deaf dip recordings. All right, let's listen to Californication. Yeah, let, let's get into it. Because I feel like you know, in in eight years uh this feels like such a decline for 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 the peppermint uh (laughs) even though it's like all the same elements right there Uh, chris i'm so impressed with all these nicknames you have for the chili peppers i've only ever heard the chili peppers (laughs) (laughs) the capsaicin boys the capsaicin boys Just like maudlin, uh, you know, those it's simple and insistent drums and rhythms are replaced with him doing like these little like snare patterns and stuff. 
got all these uh, added elements, like the keyboard in the background. It's the edge of the world in all of Western civilization. The sun may rise in the east, at least it's settled in a final location. It's understood that Hollywood sells to come in, you but it's still it's less punchy it feels muddier and everything I don't know it's just uh, you know it, 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 this kind of decline fascinates me well I think this is you know also subject matter wise I think they maybe all were sober at this point I know from Ketis's, uh narrative is that he's clean and, and not clean a bunch um, but I think that maybe it was also the 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 mindset of them of just being like, damn, we really do like live in a society. <laughs> and it, and damn, like, it really do be Californication. I, I would blame. I would blame some of the bad sound compared to Blood Sugar Sex. Also, is this is the early Pro Tools era where mm-hmm. all music sac- goes down the hill sound quality for a while because everybody gets addicted to the technology, but the Sonics haven't caught up at that point and. Mm. So every record has this little kind of staleness to it in that era. That makes sense. All right. We don't have to listen to much, much more of this. <laughs> Chris, I, I will be I, uh, Go ahead. Have, have I read the star wipe bit, the, the onion thing <laughs> about the red hot chili peppers on air before? No, I have not. No, I don't think you have. All right. I, I got to do this real quick. Hopefully I haven't done this before. I don't think so. No, the I don't star, think you have because I don't know what star this is. Star wipe is the like, I don't think it still exists, but it was like the onion, like fake tabloid. Okay. Yeah. I remember this. Yes. And this is after uh, Anthony Kiedis for real got intestinal flu and had to cancel some chili pepper shows. But the article that they published was that Anthony Kiedis was scabadaba hospitalized due to complifonications from <laughs> intestinal flu. Uh, disappointing music fans in a way heretofore unexplored. The Red Hot Chili Peppers were forced to chicka chicka cancel a sold out show over the weekend after frontman Anthony Kiedis was suddenly rushed to the hospital with complications from the intestinal flu. The band has released a statement saying Kiedis is expected to make a full recovery soon, like a cocaine mama with a kinked up spoon lighted up by a Silver Lake moon. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it, it, go, it, goes it goes on, on and on. <laughs> but I just the the in in this Rick Rubin book, like Anthony Kiedis is talking about that the inspiration for Californication, just like wow, California has really had an influence on the whole world, positive <laughs> and negative. <laughs> he, yeah. he's a poet, isn't he? You, you guys he's know a, the he's a poet. The, the the rivalry between Faith No More with them and that oh, yeah. when Faith No More did the reunion tour, they had Neil Hamburger open up every set doing thirty minutes of only Red Hot Chili Peppers jokes. That rocks. Oh my god! I love Faith No More. 
Yeah, I, mi- I miss a good beef like that. It's been a while since since things got that intense. I feel maybe <laughs> um, maybe White Stripes and Black Keys was a good one back in the day. Oh, it, it, they got in the fight with the Von Bondies too, right? Oh, yeah, Jack White was always getting in fights. You, you, you know, I, I I say all the time to like the younger bands I work with, they're like, how do how do we get popular, Jesse? I, I was like, reignite when the Killers and Fallout Boy and all of them were fighting all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or when fifty when fifty sent uh sent his roadie to sleep with Rick Ross's uh baby mama. Yes. That, that's how you guys really get this going. Oh yeah. <laughs> you imagine right. Ebo bands doing that? That'd be solid gold. Yeah. <laughs> get it get it going. Get get that wrestling uh vibe going. Just be become become a heel. <laughs> heel turn. Yes. Um so that that was that was more or less the '90s. He obviously produced and executive produced a shit ton of other stuff. And any other faves that that I have not mentioned that we want to talk about from from the '90s? Not from the I '90s. Not from the '90s. All right, we enter the we enter the aughts. Um, the he starts working with Audio Slave. Oh the, yes. This is like the real super group era where I feel like all the bands who didn't survive the '90s. Uh, needed to like reform and re- recalibrate in different groups, and Rick Rubin is there for that. So, so we're, we're missing because he does do Rage Against the Machines later stuff at that right before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rage Tom, Against the Rage Against the Machines cover album, right? I think that's the he might have done the last one too, the Battle of Los Angeles, uh, but he definitely did the cover record. Uh, Tom Morello says of the recording process for Audio Slave. Uh, Rick would like every guitar solo to sound like Angus Young. The more it sounds like Angus Young, it's a good solo. The less it sounds like <laughs> Angus Young, it's a poor solo. Okay. okay. <laughs> which is especially funny considering what a uh, Tom Morello guitar solo yes. sounds like, which is mostly a single note run through a bunch of effects pedals. Yes. <laughs> you know, by, by this point in the book, there's not really much more to say uh, of by anyone about Rick Rubin that hasn't already been said other than... You know, he obviously he does the Dixie Chicks comeback album, although it's it's put in the book as a comeback album. As we all know, like they were pretty like thoroughly actually canceled. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until they started working with Jack Antonoff that they like had their I mean, the the album that he uh, that they worked on with Rick Rubin won a Grammy and sold a decent amount of copies. But then like it did not result in sustainable fame, re-fame for the Dixie Chicks. But Natalie Maine said uh, of working with Rick Rubin, at first, I didn't know if I was down with all that guru stuff, but Rick's (laughs) spirituality has mostly to do with his own sense of self. When it comes to the music, he's so sure of his opinion that you become sure of his opinion too. And isn't that what gurus do? They know how to say the right things at the right time and get the best out of you. I thought that was interesting. Because it's like it sounds a little re- like resentful, but also like appreciative at the same time. And this is like the break in that thing we were talking about about the authenticity thing. Is he's is because country music? This is when it's all becoming the formula, the like the pickup truck, the beer thing. Mm-hmm. And he's right. like, no, we got to take you guys away from that. If this culture is going that way, he's like, we need to go authenticity. And, and it is this is where those ideas get popularized because they do so much press and interviews about his method there. That was like, literally, I remember they talked about it on good morning America and I'm like, what the fuck? Why are you talking about record production? Being like, so tell us about Rick (laughs) Rubin. I hear that your producer's an eccentric fellow. (laughs) He's very very large with a beard. This, this beard man, did he help you make the record? Uh, should we listen to one off of this just to see how this translates into uh, uh, 
Country Ooh, rock. It's yeah. gonna be rough. You you're not a fan of this one? No, I can't I'm going say with, I am. I, I, I'm going I with find Lubbock this very t- tasteless. This is well, this is 2006, The Chicks, Country, produced by Rick Ross. I'm going with Lubbock or Leave It on all music's recommendation. Let's hear what this is. <laughs> Hear it. I hear it. Nearly identical recording with Chili Pepper song. Listen to. <laughs> yeah, it's like you sl- you swap out some stylistic details, some instrumentational de- details. Yeah. own way i mean it's uh, i obviously this is the first time i've heard this song but uh it's it you know it's not it's not the worst country song i've heard and it has it jam it has some good rips in it Will you pull up something from their most recent album? The Antonov album? Yeah. Uh, yeah, let me play this out for a little longer. Uh, this is the first time learning that Antonov did a uh, Dixie Chicks record. I know, he's just, he's got a way with the ladies. He loves, he really to, collect, does. He loves to collect ladies. Oh God, I didn't realize that the name of this album was Gaslighter. Indeed. Oh yeah, yeah. I know oh, it's a it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a hashtag resistance, yeah, like kind of thing. But it's mostly well, about divorce, so. Well, you know. know your audience. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. They 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 know who who is going to pick up a, a Dixie Chicks All album right. this after is, a uh, long absence. This is we're listening to Lubbock Lubbock or leave it, Lubbock or leave it, and now we're going to Gaslighter. Sorry to keep just go. Uh, I'm running the music off of YouTube when I usually do Spotify, and I'm sorry to keep bringing this up. But every single one of the uh, comments on this is somebody sh- uh, talking about their ex who always lied to them, or uh, their their baby baby daddy who would always pull the "You didn't say that, you didn't do this." I just called my daughter to tell her about her lying father. Oh my god! And every single one of these comments is liked by the uh, the label channel. Hey, that's good engagement. That's good strategy. You, got, you guys should start a uh, spinoff or a bonus episode where you read the uh, YouTube comments off YouTube of these comments, things. Yeah. I, I'm here for that one. YouTube comments are very interesting. It's, I feel like people territory. get very real. Yeah. I mean, honestly, between these two songs, I kind of prefer the Rick Rubin one. I love the. I like the little riff on it. Uh, Again, at least it, it wins. See, I, I think they. I, I think I'm team Antonov. Produced as a pop band. Yeah. 
with a country flair. Kind of the way Taylor Swift is produced now in a little twangier. It's like those that just uh, yeah, that- one, two, one, two. I like anthemic and quote unquote anthemic drums. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I hate me a fight song, but there's something about this sensibility that's a little bit more appealing to me. Yeah. All right, that is Gaslighter. Oh, that right, is, and of course... That is not a Rick Rubin song. That is a Jack Antonoff song. I I should know, and I'm, I'm sorry I didn't. Those aren't the Dixie Chicks, y'all. Those are the Chicks. The Chicks. Oh, good point. I have completely forgot. Uh... It they, is important to note they are the they are they the did chicks. a growth. They, they evolved. <laughs> they became their they, new. They evolved. Um. Any any other? What you know? What can, can we pull up? Because I'm mostly just interested. I haven't really heard the full story on this. But uh, Rick Rubin actually contributed uh, one track to Lady Gaga's art pop. Uh, art pop. Mm-hmm. The only ballad on the album. Do you mind if we listen to it? It's no, called of course not. Dope. And I don't, I, I would love to hear how he got involved or called up or what it looked like in the room. I assume he was lying down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I could give some insight on this. So, so he's famous for when you're having like that qualm. Like there's actually a great scene and it's one of my least favorite bands of all time. Vampire Weekend comes to him when they've been working on their last record and they're just like, we don't know what's good and what's not good anymore. Mm. He's the guy, and just like Kanye, he did for Kanye Yeezus. Mm-hmm. When it hits that point where you're like, I don't know what to do anymore. He's the guy that the pop stars go in with. And that okay. is, that is a very common scenario for him. And I would, most of the time when you see him, I would credit on just one song. It's that they're like, we know this is good. Let's do it. And they don't do the Beyonce technique, which is, I should explain is the Beyonce technique that she innovated is that you just take every song to 14 producers until you hear a version that you're like, yep, that's the best one. Okay. That's, yeah. and that's why every Beyonce is song has more credits on it than almost any other artist. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. The, I that mean, that is this, interesting. This and that's one way to make a song. This yeah. definitely makes sense in the context of Arpoc, which I'm sure was a confusing <laughs> recording experience for a girl. Um, <laughs> Okay, I I think I'm ready. You're ready to listen. Shall we listen? Yeah, this is Lady Gaga's Dope. Quirks of it's on. Has just begun. I promise this. Drink is my last one. I know I fucked up again. Cause I lost my only friend. God forgive my sins. Don't leave. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> it's so funny because this vibe is very Joanne. So I, it's kind of weird that she maybe pulled a little bit of the Rick Rubin produced vibe into the next album. So this record is rumored to be one of the biggest money losers in recorded music history. God damn it. That they put so much money into it to not get much back. Nothing will ever beat Michael Jackson dangerous, but uh sure. I mean, yeah, that that is the risk, right? Like when Rick, for example, tells Johnny Cash no yeah. no limit on budget, no limit on time, and then you yep. get a payback where you win a Grammy. And then when you don't get that, then your label or whoever is maybe a little less willing to indulge. Uh, but she came, she came back. She <laughs> came back in a big way. Yeah. But apparently two of the biggest losses ever. But it's that constant thing that we talk about, though, is that when we say major labels don't invest in the artists and let them walk through the wilderness anymore, mm-hmm. that was actually a case of it really working out for them. Right. Right. I like the very subtle, like, bass synth in the very bottom yeah. of this. Yeah, like Big Profit bass. Yeah. It's a really interesting production touch. So that's funny, the idea that Rick is who you call when you're a little confused. Because mm-hmm. I do think that that jives with the idea of him as, like, kind of the guy at the top of the mountain that mm-hmm. you, like, climb. And you're like, what's the meaning of life? Yeah. And then he says something totally inscrutable, and then you go with it. Yeah, and it, it's an interesting thing, too, because like we talked about the reductionism thing that he's famous for, that a lot of the time he's just turning off things because he's like, you've been baking this cake too long, there's too much icing, mm-hmm. get it down to the cake and move on. Or he just gives you a philosophical turn of where to go. Yeah, yeah. So you are all in uh, Rick Defense Squad. Uh, you do not beli- mm. you do not agree with uh, Slipknot's Corey Taylor, oh. uh, who said uh, I- we were tra- being charged horrendous amounts of money. And for me, if you're going to produce something, you're fucking there. I don't care who you are. The Rick Rubin of today is a shadow of the Rick Rubin that he was. He's overrated. He's overpaid, and I will never work with him again. Shots fired so, from Slipknot. So this is yet again harkens back to the Mars Volta thing. Is that? Mm. Slipknot had only ever worked with Ross Robinson before. And I should say, like I started working for Ross Robinson once Iowa was done and Ross was just the total opposite. While Ross is one of the most intelligent philosophers you will also ever meet. And you know, his mom is like literally the head of a philosophical religious movement. That's somehow not a grift. I, I don't even know that we made those in America. Um, his, he's just a totally different producer. He is there every moment engaged will work 20 hours a day and stay focused the entire day. And that's not Rick's thing. That's not Rick's thing. So <laughs> when you complaining about that and you're going from one dichotomy to the other, I mean, famously too, ACDC fired him because they said he did nothing. Wow. I wonder how he thought about heroes. that. I don't think he was psyched on that one. Yeah. <laughs> that's got to that's sting. Yeah. Oh man. But that record's fantastic. That's the, the last good ACDC to me. The ACDC, the album that he produced or half yeah. produced. Yes. Uh, I never remember what this is called. Black Ice or something. Or maybe that's the song. <laughs> that sounds about right. Sure. Yeah, back, I mean, in, back in Black Ice. <laughs> <laughs> Got to be Black something. Uh, well, any more thoughts about uh, Rick Rubin? I mean, he's it's just an incredible career. And uh, like every single artist he's worked for is one that you want to listen to the songs for. Uh, a 
just incredible list of albums that he's been on. Uh, I mean, he's the man. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what else to say. I, it's, I feel like I understand somewhat better after reading and hearing about what he's like in the studio that like producing is not, it's not the same as engineering. It's, it's, it seems to be more like if, if an engineer is a midwife and has got medical <laughs> training and they can like catch the baby, cut the umbilical cord, but you still need the doula in there creating the vibes in the, in the delivery room. <laughs> I was, so I was wondering Rubin where you were going. This is good. He's kind of like a musical doula. I'm sorry. Like musical. all of my friends are pregnant right now. So nice. I, I think Molly, mind. I really think that you should develop this, this uh, producer's <laughs> analogy of the, of the, would it be the OBGYN who's like the surgical delivery person? That's the yeah. master engineer, baby. Yeah, and then like the the doula and the midwife. Mm. Yeah. Wow. But, <laughs> I, I think the interesting thing is there's so many people in music is uh, that have parallels, or you could say they're just this, they're this, this. This is a person that there's no other person that stands. The he's acumen for marketing, the business philosophy, how to bring a unique thing out of an artist. There's kind of nobody else. The, the, he is, it seems like he is concerned with the identity of the thing that you are producing mm-hmm. as much as, you know, and how the sound and, and the construction of it affects that identity. And the humanity of it. He's like a people person in a business that that's not necessarily like the easiest thing to be is like a, a, a friendly vibe trying to get the song done. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm for it. I'm, We'll see the next, I was about to say, the next time I go to a bar and someone, you know, screams in my ear that, uh, you know, Rick Rubin is full of shit, we'll see if I'm swayed. But right right now, <laughs> I get it. I get it. Get what, it. I get what he's doing. Well, with that, let's move uh, confidently into the end part of this episode. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate all your production knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very key for actually understanding and walking through all of this. Uh, is there anything that you would like to plug? Maybe tell us a little bit about what goes on on your YouTube channel. I appreciate that. Uh, Thank you, first off, so much for having me. I've listened to a lot of episodes, and even before you had Hannah on, so I was super psyched to do this. And uh, yes, uh, if you go to museformation.com, I have a YouTube channel where I teach musicians how to go from zero to 10,000 fans. And if you want to know more about me and the books I've written on music, I'm at jessecannon.com, which is... J-E-S-S-E-C-A-N-N-O-N.com. Hell yeah. Excellent. Uh, We are, this is the very next episode you hear of this podcast will be the beginning of our Our Band Could Be Your Life series. Mm -hmm. We're going to be covering an individual episode on every single band. We have a guest booked for every one of those episodes and some special bonus guests to go along with it. Uh, We are going to hopefully be releasing those. It might take us two or three weeks to get the first episode of those out, but once they start coming out, hopefully they're going to be going up every week or 10 days until we get through that series. So that's going to be a fun run through our band Can Be Your Life coming up this spring. Uh, Very excited about that. That is our programming note. Uh, But otherwise, uh, follow us on Twitter at andintropod or uh, send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com is that right I, I don't have all this information from me and introducing pod at gmail.com <laughs> our soundcloud is as always at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod 
Uh, and, you know, you can always rate and review us on iTunes. It's been a while since we've gotten a review. So why don't you go there and, you know, list your favorite uh, Rick Rubin album. There are about uh, 200 to pick from. <laughs> so there's something in there uh, that, that tickles your fancy. Um, oh, you know, I'd be curious to find someone who's like, I don't like any of them. <laughs> I, it would be it <laughs> show would yourself genuinely impressive if somebody could look at this list of albums and be like, you know what? There is literally nothing, nothing here for me. There's an Andrew Dice Clay album in here. Oh, yeah. That's a great, great, great story. <laughs> <laughs> His recording on that Andrew Dice Clay special. So crisp. <laughs> the drums on that Andrew Dice Clay special. Oh, amazing. Uh, but as always. You can leave a comment uh, with your favorite Rick uh, Rick Rubin album, or you can tell a friend. And if you know somebody who's really into Our Band Could Be Your Life or any of the bands contained within, uh, y- y- your Minor Threats, your Missions of Burma, uh, your Bigs Black, your Hooskers Do, uh, <laughs> you know, be like, hey, this band's going to be, ta- this podcast is going to be talking about them, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um But until then, we'll be back soon with that series, and we will talk to you later. Uh, No sleep till Brooklyn. Brooklyn.